experiences are important. Feeling grounded in a space that you understand and that you love is extremely important. A lot of folks make the mistake of choosing being a founder as a matter of this is fashionable, this is a resume <laughs> builder. That can put you also in a trajectory that is not as productive for your future because right. Being a founder when you don't have a good foundation also, it's going to teach you a bunch of that generalist skills, but it's not going to be giving you any depth in any specific sector, especially if you die within the first year of starting that company, which mm. you're not that passionate about. The advice that I would have is don't rush things. If you need to spend more time in a sector, in a position, even take an intermediary step like I did. There's no shame in that. Use that as learning. Build your armor build your resilience, and then just wait for the thing that you are just so committed and so attached to. Welcome to Brave. Learn from Southeast Asia's best tech leaders. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. No BS on success. I'm Jeremy Au, venture capitalist, serial founder, Harvard MBA, science fiction nerd, and dad of two daughters. Every week, we debate startup news, interview changemakers, answer listener questions, and share personal insights. Join our movement of over 20,000 members and get transcripts, resources, and community at www.braveseha.com. Meet Rinkas, your go-to digital mortgage platform breaking down financial barriers for home seekers across Indonesia and Southeast Asia. They operate in more than 15 cities in partnership with all major Indonesian banks and premier property developers. Rinkas is on a mission to democratize home ownership and create over 100 million new homeowners. Don't just dream about owning a home, make it a reality. Explore more at www.ringcast.co.id. Hey, Jan, really excited to have you on the show. You're a founder. You too also have some experience with the AB InBev slash uh, beer industry. You've been a techie at Circles Life, and now you're a founder. Really looking to build out Indonesia's supply chain. Really exciting to have you on the show. Thanks, Jeremy. Really great to be here. Super excited. So could you introduce yourself real quick? Yeah, sure. I'm originally from Brazil. Well, actually Brazilian-Belgian, but Brazilian sounds cooler. So I, I usually go with that. I've kind of been a world citizen since forever. I've never really lived in the same place for more than two, three years. So ever since I was super young, I kept moving around between Brazil, Belgium, Germany, hence the accent. So, you know, I've been very global. I ended up going to university in the UK. Had a brief stint working in finance in, in the UK after my university. But then again, just kept true to my roots and continued moving around. I can point to one thing that really defines me and really defines my roots, my DNA. We have about 400 years of supply chain and distribution in the family. And as we'll talk about it a little bit later, that shaped everything that there is to be about me today. Uh, so that's, that's me in a nutshell. And uh, yeah, excited to tell you more a little bit about what we're doing. So talk to me about what was it like growing up with 400 years of supply chain history? How does that happen? Do you like hear a bedtime story about supply chains and how things are moved from one place to other? How does that happen? Yeah, it was a story I'm really proud of and it's always driven me. I've been super excited and I have this burning fire inside every time that I think about everything that my family has done. Um, so the supply chain side of things actually started in Belgium several hundred years ago. They, they were brewers. They used to make beer. They were quite big. They were competing back in the day with the Stella mm. Artois and the large mm. brewers. We ended up losing the battle in, in the 50s. They shut mm. down the, the brewery. Mm. But uh, my grandfather was a young man back then, so he wasn't content on just shutting it down and doing something else. He ended up trying to do something daunting. He ended up moving to Brazil with the, the Belgian side of the family with my grandmother at the time and he started the orange juice side of the business uh, which is now very interesting because every generation since he started my father 
my brothers, my potentially even my sister, they'll be going into the same space. So I just felt I feel this huge backdrop of distribution and manufacturing and farming that I live and breathe every day. Our family discussions all revolve around that. And ever since I was a little kid, from growing up in, in a farming environment, in a manufacturing environment, to having visiting my dad at work in ports and things like that. It's just been such a big part of my life. I'm so curious, when you grow up in that environment, do you get like business parables or lessons, any moments that kind of struck you to be like, oh, this is something that's interesting? Yeah. One of the beautiful things about, let's contextualize this, right? I had part of this experience in Europe, in Belgium and Germany, and part of it in Brazil. Probably right. some of the most memorable times that I had were during the Brazil times. Because in Brazil, it's, it's a world of opportunity. Same as Southeast Asia, it's a new frontier. But when new frontiers come a lot of trouble and a lot of problems and a lot of things right. that break, so some of the most memorable moments that I have as a child are basically my dad having to go on these two week, three week long camping trips into the mm. ports and the big areas around you know, big logistics hubs to fix issues. For instance, leakage in ships that were coming into dock and the ports and then all the orange juice leaks out and then you have a huge environmental hazard and then sometimes visiting him and figuring out, okay, how is my dad dealing with all of that stuff? Right. So it's always been a very interesting environment for me to grow up in, very dynamic, especially on the Brazil side of things because there was always something that was just about to go wrong, but also something on the horizon that was the, the next big opportunity. Fascinating. And there you are, obviously, you have this family business and family tradition that you're there. And then I'm so curious because you joined AB InBev, which is, again, giant brewery operation. I used to consult for Heineken and Asia Pacific breweries, counterparts, I would say competitors in the space. But you spent five and a half years there. So I was just a consultant at Bain, kind of work advisory for them. So it's very different. But I spent five and a half years covering APEC, Southeast Asia, China, India. So walk me through that experience. What's it like? So I knew I wanted to work for AB InBev since the age of 13. 13? Um, Most yeah. people want to be, I don't know, a doctor or a lawyer or a pilot or a soldier. Yeah, it was, uh, we had just moved to Belgium right. and we were studying, I was at an international school. Right. And back then it was not AB InBev yet, it was InBev. So it was uh, the Belgian, they had acquired Interbrew and they were, headquarters were still in Belgium, in Leuven. Mm. So I was studying with the kids of all the executives. And this is now the biggest company in both Brazil and Belgium. Anybody who has a dream of making money and just being at the peak of their careers, they're thinking about AB InBev or they think right. about InBev. So I had both sides pulling me towards the company. And <laughs> there were some of the kids from the executives that were in my grade, that were peers and whatnot. And every time that the parents would come by, we would engage them as Brazilians or as Belgians. They would give speeches or whatever at the school, I would cling on to them. Right. I just already had this fondness for the company from a very young age, just because of the story of the background around being a brewer and whatnot. So very early on at age 13, 14, back then the global CEO, Carlos Brito, he was the, the father of a couple of my friends in school. I kind of clung on to him and I said, Hey, I want you as a mentor. Right? So he was my first real long time hmm. mentor and that influenced every decision that I made about career, about the internships that I made, about what I studied, about where I studied. And all of those things eventually led me to getting my position, my so coveted position at ABM. But I had such a, a deep relationship with them over the years that I had carved out across the different regions that they gave me leeway to kind of pick where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And uh, 400 years of supply chain is great, but you know, Brazil has the problems that I mentioned and it's a great place, mm. but my family was there. I didn't want to be in their shadow. Belgium is great, but it's kind of tiny beyond waffles, beer and chocolate. There isn't much else. So I wanted the new frontier and ABMF gave me that. They enabled me, they allowed me to have this opportunity to move to Asia with them, be in China, cover APAC, spend a lot of time in some of the most interesting markets, arguably in the world 
especially during that time. So yeah, it's been just a crazy wild journey and I've learned a ton with them. Well, you can't really say no to Belgian waffles there, but like you said, not much of a career. And so you went to ABM Bev and you spent five and a half years really covering APAC, including your base in Shanghai, you're covering Southeast Asia. So I'm just so curious, what did you learn from five and a half years? Because there's a good chunk of time you went through three different roles. And so I'm just curious what you learned from that experience. I was so self-actualized at that yeah. company. They gave me every opportunity to grow. They made me one of the youngest directors slash partners in the company. They allowed me to run business units at the age of 26, running a full PL, having a team where everybody else was at least 10 years older than me. And th that type of experience was just crazy. It accelerated my learning in a way that I wasn't ready for, but it forced me to be ready for it. So I think there was a huge maturation process and a huge acceleration in what I needed to step up to in order to be able to deliver and to continue the growth trajectory that they put me on. So I think professionally, from a maturity standpoint, that helped me tremendously. But specifically, I was exposed to a, a huge amount of variety in terms of markets. ABMBev is large in the region. They have a massive operation in in China. I think mm -hmm. they have something like 40, 50,000 employees across the region. They're large in Southeast Asia. They're huge in India. Across the roles that I had, for instance, the, the, on the director of strategy and M&A, but also as the chief of staff to the CEO, I got to work with him on some of the most strategic and important projects at that time, some of which were related to acquisitions, some of which were relating to uh, supply chain digitization. And I think that to me, that was the most marking or the most important piece of learning that I got to mm. have during that time because I got to really be thrown in the field mm. and really have to face every layer, every part of the right. supply chain that is insanely complex. For you to contextualize what a supply chain looks like end-to-end -end in India, it's massive. There's no one size fits all. You have layers and layers upon layers. And the same thing applies to China and the same thing applies to uh, places like Vietnam, Philippines, and Indonesia. So having to understand the nuances, the cultural components, having to understand what drives the various forces within the supply chain for a company to be able to really succeed in that space, uh, I think for me was the most transformative experience and learning that I've had. And it's something that I carry with me to this day. It's what drives me to do what I do today. So I would put that at the very top as the biggest learning. And if I could perhaps go with an anecdote or story, I was not very fond of management by whiteboarding. I think even though I didn't speak Mandarin at the time, they were very keen on throwing me to go in the field. They sent me to do wholesaler audits yeah. in the middle of nowhere, not speaking a word of Chinese, having to drink Baijiu with a bunch of guys that they were trying to do business with and trying to understand whether or not they were faking the accounts. Uh, so really that exposure and that brutal kind of nowhere to hide feeling that I always had being on the field, but then also having to figure out a way around for me it was one of the best schools of life that I could have hoped for. So what's interesting is that there you are and you're doing this for five and a half years and I totally get it. I've been a consultant, so I have done three months of bouncing around the jungle, nowhere as much as you did. I was in Thailand and Hainan in China and so seeing some of that stuff. But what's interesting is that you then chose to move towards technology. So you joined Circles Life and eventually became a founder. So walk me through that process. Why did you decide to strike out? My runway with ABM Bev was very well carved out. So my pathway to leadership, to getting having a fantastic career with them, there was absolutely nothing wrong with the company. But I came to the realization that in a big corporate with 300,000 people globally, sometimes you're not as in control of your career as you think you might be. Right. And I've always wanted to be at the driver's seat. And I always wanted to be in charge of my learning. And I felt that for the first time in my life, I wasn't anymore. Uh, I was now entering phase of where politics 
and exogenous factors would influence my path forward from there because I had already reached directorship. Now it, things need to piece together. So once that realization came to be, I was just so sure that entrepreneurship was the only path forward, but I wasn't ready yet. You know, I was 28 at the time. Most of my life was corporate. I had worked across different parts of APAC, but I hadn't made the difficult decision to get closer to the markets that I thought were the most interesting ones. So for me, the only path forward was to leave the comfort and the warm embrace of AB InBev and then expose myself to a wholly new environment where I could get exposure to technology. I I could learn the ecosystem. I could learn what it's like to work with founders. And that really drove me to circles and to work with the founders there, which was, again, one of the most foundational experiences of my life. It offered me the opportunity to have a hard crash and a, a steep learning curve into the world of SaaS, into the world of technology, into the world of venture as a whole. Amazing. And there you decide to go and say, you know what? It's a hard crash. It's a steep learning curve. Let me double down on this and build another company. <laughs> yeah. Walk me through that. You're like, you know what? I love punishment. So I'm a sucker for more. Let me just become a founder. I think one of the most pronounced characteristics right. that people observe in me over time is I like the hard crashing. I like to be in a situation where I know it's going to be such a foreign environment to me and there's a risk of failure, but I overcome that risk of failure. And that right. is then what creates an ex- exponential opportunity. So even at Circles, even though it was such a foreign environment and it was such a, a difficult sector to grasp and that not just to learn about SaaS, but to learn about telco and to learn about Singapore and then to relocate my family here and all of those things. Within a year, I felt like I was on a tear because the learning that I had, I was able to have in that, that one year superseded anything that I could have ever expected. The project I worked on, the, the breadth of and the scope that, that I was touching was really far beyond what I could have imagined. And it's almost counterintuitive. It is that breadth and it is that momentum which made me feel ready again for the next hard crash, which is what happens when you become a founder, which is you go into the complete unknown and there are no guardrails, there is nothing. And then it's just you against the world. It was part of my maturation process to be able to do it. And it was the right time. It was the right time because I felt connected to the ecosystem. I felt supported. I felt a sense of confidence that I just knew that you can throw me off of any building and I'll land on my feet. So that was really it for me. To land on your feet, into Indonesia supply chain. And so not just any vertical, right? I mean, if you had told me FinTech, okay, SaaS, okay. I mean, yeah, I got 400 years of family, I don't know, blood and everything into supply chain. But Indonesia supply chain has been tough. And we discussed this, right? I've been a founder before. We were going through the mechanics. We're going through the landscape. So how did you say, you know what? I want to build Indonesia supply chain. I want to work a middleman. I want to build basket. Yeah. The move to Singapore was very intentional. It was always a stepping stone into just adding another Bayesian filter for me to then be able to make that next decision in a better way. I wasn't ready to skip ahead three steps. I needed that intermediary step. So for me, I always had it very clearly in my mind that I was going to do something either in the Philippines and Vietnam uh, or in Indonesia, which are three markets that I worked in before. And I saw a tremendous opportunity within supply chains just by virtue of how fragmented and how complex they are. And then I think I had already decided on what I was going to do. As I mentioned to you, when I was working at ABM, but when I was doing the supply chain digitization work, and I came across various frustrations and things that I knew were fundamentally broken 
across markets, China, India, Southeast Asia, very similar components that were broken and were not being addressed. I already had a very clearly what the backbone of the company that I wanted to build mm -hmm. was going to be doing, which is the strengthening of the middle layers of the supply chain. I just right. hadn't focused yet on this is the market I'm going to do it. This is the team I'm going to do it with. And this is how exactly I'm going to execute step by step. Now, a couple of things happened in... 2021 and 2022 that really put the spotlight on Indonesia. I got further appreciation just for how crazy and fragmented and difficult the market is, which for uh, uh, a lover of hard crashes such as myself was nirvana when it comes to trying to solve problems and figuring <laughs> out how to, how to toughen the skin, right? If you think about a market where you want to solve a supply chain problem, Indonesia is the most exciting one by far. It's one of the most complex topographies, geographies in the world. You think about the tectonic plates and the volcanoes and the thousands of islands. And then you think about one of the largest populations in the world. It's just so complex. And it's that complexity that made me feel, okay, that has opportunity, but it also has space. It has the gray areas where a product, the right company can really go and have the right impact. And in parallel to that, a few things started to happen within the venture space, a few investments, a few trends starting to go into the more disruptive approaches to supply chains, which would involve compressing the supply chain so that you have fewer players and you're kind of bypassing some of the, the middlemen, some of the layers that I've, I wanted to vouch to empower. And I think that as I saw that happening in parallel, I felt a sense of urgency to ensure that sure, some of that traditional supply chain, some of those layers will indeed be streamlined and there will be some consolidation. But I felt a sense of ownership and, and just drive that I also needed to be there in parallel to be able to do the opposite, the, the work that is required not to let those parts of the supply chain fall behind. So that's what brought me there. And that's what's going to keep me there for a really long time. That's interesting because we've always seen how tough this category is. He so said something like, oh, the complexity attracted me. Well, the complexity has also killed so many companies in this space. I think from our perspective, maybe at least seven different generations. And what I mean by that is seven different generations of different approaches that have attack the space with different components. Some of them are looking to disrupt the supply chain. Some of them looking to consolidate. Some of them looking to complement. Others are working at the top with the principals. Others are working at the middlemen and the distributors. And other people are working all the way at the bottom, whether there's Walrongs or Saris, or, you know, so on and so forth. There's so many different approaches. So really interesting to see you approach this. When you take a step back and you look at this whole landscape, and I think you spelled this very clearly in your press release and your communications, but one of the big things you often say is that you're looking to complement and support supply chain rather than disrupt it. And somehow that seems to be very important because you say that all the time. So tell me about what the core of that thesis is. The core of the thesis is the following, that disruption of supply chain entails that there are players in the supply chain today that are not carrying their weight. They are dead weight within that distribution chain. Either they are intermediaries that don't need to be there. They are providing services that don't need to be provided. And just generally speaking, it's margin that is up for grabs. That's usually the core premise of many of the disruptive models, mm -hmm. right? This is a traditional player. I can do a better job. Therefore, right. I'm going to go and I'm going to capture this margin. Right. And it's a narrative that folds itself well on the back of the buzz that we have around e-commerce. If we right. say e-commerce is going to get huge, everything is right. going to be orders and delivered to your right. door. And then at the same time, we're having this narrative around B2B, which is cutting down the supply chain, shortening the distances, et cetera. It all sounds very coherent and it all sounds very beautiful. But you know, when you actually take this out of a, the microcosm that is Singapore, 
Jakarta, Ho Chi Minh, where we have tier one cities where you might be able to do this because of the population density and because of the, the, the GDP per capita in that area that it's ready for that type of condensing. If you take it outside, you realize that it, the, the world is not as rosy. Mm. You have so much old infrastructure, warehouses, trucks. And by old, I don't necessarily mean that it's ineffective. I just mean that it's been there for a long period of time, generations upon generations. You know, businesses that complement tier two cities, tier three cities, tier four cities that have been foundational to the development of those communities. And when I say that empowerment and, and enabling is the right path forward. What I'm mm. saying is these businesses that have entrenched themselves in those communities for such a long period of time, they will not fall prey to that compression so easily mm. because again, if one wants to remove them, one needs to build on top. One needs to be able to do the work that they do better. And I'm right. sorry to say, but it would be a fallacy to believe that any startup or most companies for that matter have the ability to be more efficient than that guy who's been operating that business in that area for 60 years that knows the kids of all the other owners, all mm. of the retail folks, all of his peers. It's just absolutely impossible. So again, we take the approach that this is an indispensable and very important part of the ecosystem by virtue of those relationships and by virtue of the work that they do in areas where to be honest, startups are going to take a really long time to go into. And right. even if they wanted to, they would need to spend a huge amount of money. All those warehouses and those trucks, they don't come in cheap. Yeah. So, so we work with them. We work with the folks who are there already. We help them to use their infrastructure a little bit better, be it improving how they manage their warehouse, how they manage their logistics. And by doing that, we create, we bit by bit elevate a part of the market that was previously offline and turn that into a more conducive kind of layer that can then support all of this digitization that is happening in the other parts of the supply chain, right? You mentioned the upstream, you mentioned retail. I mean, I don't know, supporting, that sounds so boring. Disruption, that's so much cooler. You know, rebuild, restack, compress, disintermediate, right? I think these are things that feels like it generates a lot more value because of that. You can call it dead weight, but I think the idea of technology can bring a lot of efficiency to the system, right? The productivity gains are so much higher. The network effects are higher as a result. Why do people get it wrong? Or what are people missing in the adjustment? Because nobody's dumb, right? And nobody's uh, lazy, right? Everybody's hardworking. Everybody's working the ass off. Everybody's smart. Everyone's kind of like aggressive and trying to figure stuff out. So what's the kind of, you think, blind spots or what are the frameworks that's causing people to assess this differently from your perspective? I think the majority of people or companies who go into the space, they don't survive long enough to be able to have a a medium to long-term adaptation. They go in this with promises of a massive TAM, a massive amount of funding, this promise that the model of disruption is going to take hold. And once they realize that it won't because of the, the things that I mentioned before, because you have this layer, which is there, which you can't bypass and, and, and take over and, and capture those margins as easily as you thought you might, then you start to go into a tailspin because what are you going to, you're going to compensate the, you're going to compensate the, perhaps a lack of traction by hiring more. You're going to grow the size of the organization in order to perhaps fulfill growth metrics, which are not necessarily aligned with the long-term survival of the company. So again, I think this space is a survivalist's game. The companies that will survive within this space that will be able to create long-term change are the companies that can join, can remain nimble, 
that can keep their costs relatively low, can find the ways to work with the different parts of the ecosystem, not just with a single part. When I say enablement, I'm not just talking about the wholesalers, the distributors, intermediaries. I'm talking about how that connects to the brands. I'm talking about how that connects to the financial ecosystem, which is providing working capital, how that connects to the folks that are today providing 3PL services. Mm -hmm. But you need to be able to survive long enough to understand the nuances and to get the model right without blitzscaling like crazy and just trying to go for the first thing that appears to be the right solution because it's extremely nuanced. So I think that's what pe most people get wrong. It's scaling prior to having figured out really what is the combination of models that will be sustainable in the long term. And once that happens, it's very hard to claw it back because, you know, and you will have seen this before, the unit economics, they don't tend to add up in this space for a while. Oh, that's so much to unpack there, right? Uh, I think we're, um, we're going to both nerd out here a little bit. I think there's a couple of phrases here, which is scaling before the business models interlock. And that is also hard to unwind once you scale because of the unit economics don't stack. So this is an expert conversation here. So first of all, what do you think are the business models that do stack? I think you mentioned this. You talk about technology, you talk about operations, you talk about financing. And that's something that many startups have actually said they do provide those things, right? Operations, technology, and financing. So what does it mean to be thoughtful about what you're stacking together here? Yeah. So long as your base is light and you're providing those things, you're in good shape. If your base is heavy, meaning that you're a working capital heavy business, you are providing you have hundreds of trucks on the streets, you have mm. thousands of people and you're in holding inventory. Let's just say that there's no cash conversion cycle. There's no working capital cycle that can survive the test of time here. You just don't have room because you're fighting in a low oxygen environment with an extremely heavy model. I, I really do feel that, sure, all of those areas can create value, can be revenue drivers, but the flexibility, the lightness on your feet for you to be able to perhaps crank up the heat on one of the areas that is generating more revenue while departing from others that may have proven not to be so profitable. That's what really di dictates the winners from the losers. What I find is a common mistake in the space is the quickest way to get traction is by entering the 1P model space and just going into a more of an inventory play. And mm. then once you start to do that, it's very hard to go back, which is really <laughs> hard to go back. Sounds like that two... I wouldn't say errors, but the first error is inventory in order to supposedly increase margins and so on so forth, but ends up being a whole chimera slash dragon all to manage altogether, like you said. But the second thing I actually found interesting was that you said it's not necessarily that the models in terms of value add is wrong, but it's the denominator is, right, in terms of your savingness and your approach. And, you know, and then you said the unit economics doesn't stack as a result. So kind of walk me through the positive version of this from your perspective and what a negative version of this looks like. Let's use a, a very simple example here. Let's assume that I am going to streamline the supply chain by becoming an inventory holder. So right. I'm basically becoming a wholesaler. So you're going to have to deal with, first of all, the massive amount of working capital you need to come up with to be able to source. Uh, it's going to take you a long time to be able to have the right sourcing relationships to be able to commend mm -hmm. good pricing. So your margin is going to be compressed already from the get-go. Now, you're going to have on the opposite side requirements or promises to investors. So you're going to be subsidizing transactions on the buyer end. So most likely, if you break even on CM1, you're already in good shape. And most, most just simply don't. Now, on top of that, you're adding logistics and most of the logistics that is run by folks that go into the space is usually third party. So 3PLs. I mean, I think 3PLs is a fantastic thing for the economy as a whole, but it's just not something that 
startups in our space can afford to do. You're spending 15 million rupiah or $1,000 a month on a truck. And on top of it, you're spending, you're basically having to ensure the cash that those that is being collected or is being brought in through those operations. So now you're already in a situation where in CM1, you're already struggling. Then you add the logistics on top. And then on top of it, you have to pay extra to ensure cash because you're dealing in a mm. super cash rich economy mm. in a cash focused economy. There is no business that can survive those pressures. Mm. Why? Because in the traditional world, none of those things are actually pressures. Uh, you, you think about a traditional wholesaler, he doesn't worry about collecting cash. He's going to get paid anyway. He doesn't worry about the logistics. He's got his tiny little truck there that he shares with seven other wholesalers and they're all happy. And he doesn't even think about that as a cost. Actually, the store owners come to buy stuff directly from his store. So the equation just don't, does not add up. Because at the end of the day, when you get to the consumer pricing, there's only one consumer pricing. They're going to go for the cheapest price that they can afford. So again, I think it's a bit of a meat grinder if you go into the asset-heavy operations for this space. So what's the solution from your perspective? How do you orchestrate? How do you complement that if this is not the way? It depends what you're after. It's perfectly acceptable to start a wholesaler business. Even within FMCG, you can still make good money. Don't get me wrong. If you have tight operations, if you insert yourself into the local communities, you can make great business. You can have amazing cash flows. Sure, you're going to have to learn to do all of those things that the local players are doing, but you can still do that. It, is it a venture-backable business? I'm not so sure. It's a mm -hmm. lifestyle business. Right. So if that's your objective, then that's absolutely no problem. My objective is to capture data across the entire middle distribution layer in Indonesia, not just because it's a nice to have, but because you think about the applications and what I can do with that data from productizing it to leveraging it for underwriting to then monetizing it with the principles. I win by having the broadest possible base. So again, for me, the lighter I can be and the more brains I can be inside of those wholesalers capturing data day in and day out the more that's conducive to what I believe could be a highly scalable and valuable business in the future. So again, it all comes down to being light on your feet. And it comes down to, you know, not being afraid to identifying all of the various areas within the business that you can capture revenue from. People would be surprised how many different revenue lines you can create out of this. And sure, it adds complexity a little bit, but there are so many areas within the supply chain that are Perhaps you're not making your three, four, five percent take rates, but you're making 0.2, you're making 0.3, you're making 0.4. But if your cost is 0 0.5, 0 0.05 or 0.1 to run your operations, you're in for a really high margin business, especially if you're scaling that across many wholesalers in the country. How is that a win for the wholesalers and distributors partnering with you in that scenario? Because it sounds scary initially, right? It's like, oh, okay, you're taking data, you're productizing excess. So how, is that, how do they benefit? The wholesalers care about one thing only. They care about sales and they care about their bottom line. And the bottom line is not even that. They care about it, but let's just say that they have difficulties in properly calculating it. So long as we are able to bring additional traffic for them and technology is enabler to be able to do that. We are both winning. I'm winning because I'm capturing the data that I need in the process digitizing this wholesaler. The wholesaler is winning because he's selling more. He is able to reach 
a bigger area. But at the same time, he is bit by bit starting to see the benefits of digitization, how great it is to know how much inventory you have, how great it is to know that you're actually not going to have enough cash this month to be able to fulfill certain orders or certain POs. That is a huge value add for them. One of the major pain points that we see comes month end and these wholesalers, they start to say, you know, this month we're going to come short 800 million rupiah because I just ran out of cash. I just don't have enough cash left in my mm. little box here. I cannot fulfill these POs. I cannot go and pay the brand owners mm. or the distributors. That alone, the opportunity cost that we help them to avoid is, is, is great. So those little points of delight create a sense of trust and a sense of, hey, we're in this together. If you win, I win. That is really hard to move away from. So that's why our customers don't churn very much. And once we start to go deeper and we start to go into other areas of adding value, like helping them to actually for the first time, obtain capital from outside because we are now their advocates and saying, mm. this is a good business. Mr. Bank, you should look at this business seriously. Here's the data. Here's how you should be thinking about it. And being able to do that for the first time, that's a whole new world we open for that, that wholesaler. Similarly, when we get that wholesaler to be plugged in directly to the brand owner who wants to say, hey, I want to sell my product X in this region. And th this wholesaler is almost acting as a sub-distributor now with direct brand investments. You know, that is a big deal for that wholesaler. Because again, in the hierarchy of supply chains, the wholesaler is below the distributor that he always wants the brand investments. He always wants to be more connected with the brands, but the distributors are the ones that are the gatekeepers there. So again, I think there are many ways that we add value and we can win together. And the more we do this, the more we monetize. Right. I think what's interesting, of course, is that for this entire category is very much also not just about helping, but also how monetization happens. So that's a big question that people have. People have tried SaaS, other people have tried success outcomes. What do you think, not necessarily by yourself, but you look at this whole space, what's the best approach from your perspective? I think you need to play multi-category. Mm. Uh, that's absolutely critical. You need volume drivers and you need margin drivers and you need to have the data capabilities to be able to know what's what. If you're just a volume driver, it's going to be very difficult. So if you, if you really want to, if you want to monetize from a marketplace model perspective, you need to be able to play across different categories and you need to be able to play across products that have different price sensitivities. I think that once you are there and once you're building that relationship and once you're already transacting, it's not too much. It's not too much to actually go beyond that and monetize different areas. So once you have become multi-vertical, once you are driving volume for your partners across different categories, for you to then use that data to monetize, as I mentioned, for instance, our fin financing partnerships, uh, whenever we have a loan that is dispersed, we take a cut. Whenever we bring volume to some of the 3BL players that we're bringing, we take a cut. Whenever we bring an incremental volume to the brand, mm. we take a cut. So monetization, as I was mentioning, I think the core there needs to be a price sensitivity game, making sure mm. that you are working with products that afford the right margins for you to have at least a base. Mm. And then everything that comes on top of that is just margin accretion. So mm. the financing is part margin accretive. All of the stuff that we do in terms of cross. So we do charge for our software as well, for instance. It's not a massive amount, but the wholesalers are happy to pay for that once we deliver 5-10% of uh, incremental sales for them. So that there are definitely ways that you can monetize on top. But if your bucket is a leaky bucket from the beginning because you're just doing volume driving and that's not generating much margins for yourself mm -hmm. or for your customers, then uh, it's very hard to layer anything on top. As you go through and think about point A to point B to point C, what do you think is the vision that you are trying to build out from your perspective? I want to build out, if I could summarize it in four or five words, it's just software-defined supply chains. I want to have 
the the little operating systems and enough nodes within Indonesia's supply chain such that anyone who wants to go to market, anyone who wants to participate or to play in specific areas, whether you are a D2C brand or whether you are a large brand that wants to gain penetration in a specific area, Basket becomes the go-to because we are connected across and I can provide that stitched up distribution chain for you on a silver platter. That's the, the, the grand vision that I'm trying to create and I'm driving towards. But for me to be able to do that, the first step is colonizing that important middle layer and then utilizing that layer to create value for the other folks. So it's bit by bit. And it's not going to be just one layer across the entire country. We're taking a city by city approach, which is a little bit different than what some other startups do. We're not blitzing all of Indonesia. We're operating in a few cities in West Java and we're really going deep. So this layer cake approach that we're taking, right? We do that repeatedly. It's almost like a little bit of a rocket internet type of game. Um, but over time, as we repeat this across, then I, I believe we're able to, to create this effect and hopefully basket will will be the, the, the go-to market as a service for, for any supply chain. Amazing. On that note, could you share about a time that you personally have been brave? Let's go back to when I decided to leave ABM Bev, yeah? So I'll share a few details here. I won't go into, into numbers or anything like this, but I had a few houses worth of highly liquid stock that was maybe a year and a half away from vesting that was just going to be in Hong Kong, there's no tax either. So a few houses worth of equity that I would have had access to now. Um, and I consciously decided to walk away from that in the middle of COVID when every border was completely closed. There were only, I think, four countries at the time that could enter Singapore. I think it was China, New Zealand, and, and a few others. Um, and I decided to take this job in a place that in a sector that was completely foreign to me whereby I knew that I was moving my, I was a newlywed. I just got married with my now wife, that I was moving my future. I was moving my family. I was moving everybody in an environment where my life is now dependent on an EP. Right. And if I don't pass probation, I have to pack my bags and move back with my parents mm. somewhere in Europe or Brazil, because there is nowhere else in Asia that will take me. There's nowhere, I cannot go to back to China. I cannot go to Hong Kong. All of the borders were shut and yeah. I would have just been completely ejected from an environment that I've been trying to, for a very long period of time, to really crack and to insert myself in. So I was very aware that taking this risk, if, if I didn't perform, that would have been the consequence and it would have massively changed the course of my life. So failure was not an option. And I think that's really what stoked a fire that was probably bigger than it would have been otherwise. Uh, but yeah, I felt, I feel that was pretty brave. Wow, that is brave because you walked away from cash and those golden handcuffs. For people who are thinking about it, thinking about potentially leaving like a nice job or whatever it is, or thinking about doing something entrepreneurial, any advice that you would share about how to think it through or how to position themselves or get themselves ready for that? Yeah, I think uh, experience is very important. Um, feeling grounded in a space that you understand and that you love is extremely important. Uh, I think a lot of folks make the mistake of choosing being a founder as a matter of this is fashionable, this is great, this is a resume builder. And I think that that can put you also in a trajectory that is not as productive for your future because right. being a founder when you don't have a good foundation also is not going to be it's going to teach you a bunch of that generalist skills, but it's not going to be giving you any depth in any specific sector, especially if you die within the first year of starting that company, which mm. you're not that passionate about. So the advice that I would have is don't rush things. If you need to spend more time in a sector, in a position, even take an intermediary step like I did. 
There's no shame in that. Use that as learning, build your armor, build your resilience, and then just wait for the thing that you are just so committed and so attached to where you have a thesis that it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter whether it's investor friendly. It, you with your whole heart really believe that it's possible. And then you go and you test everything that you can against it. Once you reach that point, then you're kind of unstoppable. So yeah, that would be my advice. On that note, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'd love to kind of summarize the three big takeaways I got from this. The first, of course, thank you so much for being open about 400 years of family experience in supply chain. I thought it was a lovely portrait of what it was like to grow up with that family history, but also with that legacy of knowledge and conversation and you growing up and seeing your father deal with various crises and saying, I want more of that. Normally people are like, okay, time to become a lawyer or something or influencer. So so I think it's interesting to say, like you take out both heads and say, yes, I want to do more of that. And I think it's really a interesting conversation about what it was like to grow with that understanding. The second, of course, is the interesting piece about the dive on what the Indonesia supply chain looks like. So I think it was very nice and interesting to see how you looked at it from AB Invest perspective, but also specifically by Indonesia in terms of the complexity, in terms of topography, which was interesting, obviously in terms of geography, as well in terms of markets. I thought it was very interesting for you to split out the different tiers of the supply chain, but also your thoughts about whether the best approach is to either disrupt or to complement. And even if you're trying to complement, I think there's this further level of sophistication between the business models that you're there, the pricing or monetization of revenue partnership models, the unit economics, and then the scaling component. I thought it was very fascinating to have that nuanced conversation about, hey, this is what we've been able to learn hasn't worked for past generations of players and operators versus perhaps this is a thesis for the future, which we don't know yet. We're going to find out over the next five to 10 years together. But I think it's really fascinating to hear that conversation about your hypothesis about what needs to be done and built. Uh, lastly, thank you so much for sharing about what it was like to make career transitions. I think it was interesting for you to share about what it was like to make a decision to join ABMBF. You made a decision to join Circles Life. You made a decision to join Basket. But each of them had that inflection point about what were your considerations in terms of capital, in terms of geography, in terms of even the COVID pandemic situation. So I thought it was really fascinating to hear that. And I'm sure that it's going to be so helpful for folks who are considering about their own career transitions. On that note, thank you so much, Yen, for coming on the show. Uh, it's, a, it's a huge pleasure, Jeremy. Much appreciated and looking forward to hopefully another one in the future. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this episode, please share the podcast with your friends and colleagues. We would also appreciate you leaving a rating or review. Head over to www.bravesea.com for member content, resources, and community. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.